session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, on Instagram Live for the show, so I'm not taking calls, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. The book of the week for this week is a Matter of Death and Life by Irvin D. Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. A Matter of Death and Life. And uh, actually, I got the recommendation for this book from a listener from Germany. So, Danke, thank you for that recommendation. Uh, and this is Irvin Yalom is a very um, prominent figure in psychology, written many books and contributed a lot um, to the field. And this book is him and his wife, Marilyn, who is a writer, uh, writing a, a story of their, what I think is their last year together. I haven't started the book yet. So it seems like it'll be a very intense, powerful book uh, about their last year together. And I believe she dies um, as they concluded writing the book. So it says a year long journey by the renowned psychiatrist and his writer wife after her terminal diagnosis as they reflect on how to love and live without regret. So um, should be a, a intense read, but I'm looking forward to it. A Matter of Death and Life by Irvin D. Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. Again, thank you to uh, that listener from Germany for that recommendation. Much appreciated. And so the book of the week from last week that usually I would talk about tonight, but I won't be. Uh, is post-traumatic slave syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. Uh, but Dr. DeGruy uh, kindly has accepted to be on my show Wednesday to discuss the show, uh, to, to discuss the book. So I'm um, very excited for that. So tune in on Wednesday of this week where I will have Dr. Joy DeGruy on the show to discuss her book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing. And so since I have her on the show Wednesday to talk about the book that left today uh, open to take some of your questions. So I posted on Instagram since yesterday um, asking you to send in your questions and kindly, I think over, uh, I got over a hundred responses of people uh, with questions or suggestions for topics. So I thought today or on tonight's show, I can get to some of those. Of course, with so many, I won't be able to get to all of them, but I'll try to make some of my answers shorter to get to more of those questions. And many of them I've written down. So if I don't talk about them on tonight's show, maybe I'll be able to discuss them on a future show. So there was one that was more general about COVID, reflections on COVID. And, uh, you know, it's Last week, I forgot the exact date, but it marked one year since we had a shutdown in many places in the United States, including California. And it's been quite an interesting journey. As uh, you, many of you probably remember, I remember myself, we were hearing that it would probably be a few weeks and then life would be back to normal. And so that's what I was expecting. Here we are a year later and clearly we're not back to normal at all. Um, so it's been quite an interesting year and uh, something to reflect on. So 
To begin with, one of the interesting things I've experienced and many people I've talked to have is that this last year has been, in some ways, the longest and the shortest year at the same time. And we might think, how might that be? You know, time is this. Of course, we try to keep track of it in a way that might seem objective, but our experience of it is very subjective. And it's not um, something that we can say uh, it's always going to feel the same. Obviously, when you're having fun, you might feel like time is going by more than if you're not having a good time. As we age, we know that time feels like it's going shorter. That's why when you're Dealing with a child, you want to be very aware that time is in a way dilated for them, meaning that, okay, it's just 20 minutes, but to a three-year-old child, 20 minutes feels like such a long time, especially depending on what's going on. But so we, we've, we've experienced time subjectively. And so how it could be the shortest and the longest, the reason why I think that's the case is that it feels short this last year because many of the things that we usually do in the course of a year that we commemorate things like holidays and going on certain trips or doing certain um, of, uh, different types of events, they didn't happen this last year. And I had the experience also, many people told me the same thing, where they would think about a time, they say, oh yeah, last July, and they'd realize like, oh no, wait, it was July 2019. But because of the way July 2020 was, where maybe not much was going on as far as things we usually did, it felt like a... Uh, it didn't happen. So in that way, this year felt very short because many of the things we usually experience that let us know time is passing or that a year is passing didn't happen. And I think it's interesting the way we experience time. It really is in a way like we feel like we're taking uh we experience as if we're in a certain space with that time. I know there's time and space and uh, things that I won't understand as far as the astrophysics goes and things of that nature. But there's a way we experience time. Like it feels like, oh, it's March again. For many Iranians, they feel no ruse is approaching and it can even affect the way that they feel. Last year, many of the things that help us know that time is passing didn't happen. So in that way, not a lot happened. So it felt like it happened very quickly or it didn't even happen, but it feels long because we also, uh, time felt like it was going slow. We weren't having as much enjoyment or fun as we usually do. So as a result, it felt like a very long year. So I think that's one of the interesting paradoxes of how um, we've experienced this last year is that time has gone very slow and very fast in some ways. And that's kind of some of my thoughts on that. I also remember when the pandemic started, I had a very um, strange experience, as many people did, where, as I was talking about how we keep track of time, that nothing was happening or felt like nothing was happening. Things in my uh, practice were changing. The radio, we were dealing with some things, so I didn't do my show for uh, a very sh a couple of weeks, but a little bit of time. And strangely enough, one of the things that helped me feel like I still was grounded in time in some way was reading the books that I do. Because I, I read a book a week, and the fact that I was still doing that and looking at how far I was, interestingly, in the book, felt like, okay, I'm coming to the end of the week, and this is one week of time, and then the next week is starting. Because the usual ways of keeping track of time felt like they were not there. So that was another interesting experience that I wouldn't have thought that reading the books a week would give me some sense of grounding in the passage of time. But during those first, especially weeks of COVID, it definitely did that for me. And so, uh, of course, there's so many different areas we can look at 
um, COVID and how it's affected us in different ways. And of course, sometimes we'll say we're all in this together in a way we are, that we can try to band together and work together, one, to to stop the spread of COVID, but also uh, to come together to help each other. But of course, everyone is experiencing it in different ways. And it's not really fair to say everyone's in it together. We should be mindful of that when we recognize that some people uh, are facing far bigger challenges than we might. So uh, we might not they might not feel there's so much in it together with us uh, or whoever you are uh, when they're going through all of that. Another thing we experience is that many of the things that we took for granted that have to happen didn't happen and we saw we were okay not going into the office, not working as much, not doing certain things. Um, we realized we were okay and I think something that many people experienced and like anything, it's not all good or all bad, but people were forced to be home more with their families. So there there were more conflicts and things did arise, um, which itself is not necessarily bad. It's something to deal with. But people also spent more time with their kids than they ever had before. And I think, I hope for some people, it was this recognition that well, when we want to go back to normal, something that we hear a lot, was it so normal the way I was living my life and we as a society were living our lives? And do I want to rush back to that necessarily? And I think for a lot of people, and I hope for a lot of people, the answer would be no. If you were working 14 hours, again, there are sometimes people who have certain demands on them, so necessities. But if you were working 14 hours a day and not seeing your children, and now you're home more, a lot of people realize, why was I doing that. This is more important than that. And I I don't necessarily need to work that much and we can reshape or shift our priorities. The pandemic made so many things close and stop that it was like a forced reset. You didn't plan on it. You didn't ask for it, but it did force you to reset a lot of things. And so if we were given the opportunity to restart the way we live our lives, what would you do the same and what would you do differently? Which is also a reminder of how we want to be intentional in how we live our lives in general. Um, When I work with clients, even my own experience in talking to people, what we sometimes realize is life, it feels like it's happening to us more than it feels like we're choosing to live our lives. Oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, then this is coming up, then I need to do this. Uh, putting out all these little fires, just doing certain things that we feel we quote unquote have to do. Um, and when we pause and take a look at things, we realize, wait, why am I doing all of these things? Do I have to do all of them? Would I choose to do all of them? And so it's a reminder to live an intentional life, meaning that you look at how you are using your time, What is in your life that you like and want to keep or want more of? What is there that you wish there was in your life that there isn't? Looking back on your life 10 years from now or in these next 10 years, what would you feel would be missing if you continued living in this way? Or what would you like to have be in your life? So I hope for everyone, as much as there is this rush to go back to normal, which is understandable because we missed so many things. When things go back to normal, there's a sense of calm that it gives us going back to how things were. Change always creates some anxiety. Uh, what I think is important that we realize that do we need to rush back to how those things were if they were unhealthy so much about our own lives and about society was unhealthy we don't necessarily need to rush back to that Uh, so i know i would (laughs) try to get through these quickly but clearly i'm not doing that if you've listened to my show you know that that a lot of times isn't the case maybe i'll shift to this one 
and I wrote them down mostly word for word. How do we deal with crazy people against the vaccine and all the wrong info that they have? So that was a question that was asked. So um, as is often the case, if you approach anyone who disagrees with you with the mindset that they are uh, crazy, you're probably not going to have a good conversation. And really, there probably isn't a, a... a hope or really a point to have a conversation with someone you're calling or considering crazy. So uh, to begin with, I myself, I did get the vaccine and I, I'm not a medical expert by any means, but I think for anyone who is eligible and if they talk to their doctors and make sure there are no considerations for them, I hope that people would get the vaccine. I think it makes sense. Do I know exactly what's in the vaccine, everything, and and can I know uh, what will be the long-term results? Of course not, Uh, but I do have that type of faith in science and the scientific community that and i do have faith that there are people that would want to make a vaccine yes people will make money off of it but i do believe that people would even want to make a vaccine to help people not just because of the financial uh, benefit to themselves Uh, so i do have that faith in people and in the scientific community so i I got the vaccine of course not knowing 100 percent. but anyway people who are you know don't agree or will read something uh, or have heard something, uh, whatever that might be. As I said, if you approach the conversation uh, as they are crazy, you probably won't get very far. The book I discussed, Think Again by uh, Adam Grant, I think has some good uh, talking points about or good advice on how to deal people who disagree with you. And the first point is, I would say, don't try so hard to convince them as in pull them. You know, usually if you try to pull at someone, even in a physical way, they're going to pull back. And so that's what happens when you have a conversation, especially if you attack them personally, as well as on their ideas, calling them crazy, calling them stupid. Well, you're not going to likely get very far. But if you actually give them space to come towards you, there's more of a chance. And I would also say when you start the conversation, yes, on some things you might feel like you're definitely right. But first, we have to also be aware that we could be wrong. That's something that unfortunately, I think with the advent of social media is becoming even more prevalent that people think they have to proclaim their opinion as some kind of a, you know, it's been dictated by God that this is a truth. This is the how we should deal with schools. This is the right way to deal with the economy, with COVID, with this, with that. We have to all act as if we know exactly the truth, even when experts in a certain field might not agree about what to do or what would happen if we do X, Y, or Z thing. So I think it's important to be a little bit more humble and have that intellectual humility that I could be wrong or I don't know for sure. Here's what I think. Here's what I believe. I'll share it with you, but I don't can't say I know something. I know this is this way. What are you saying? You're crazy or stupid. If you go into that mindset, you're probably going to have a a bad conversation. But if you're open, uh, that helps. So that's actually an interesting thing. If you're wanting the person you're talking to to be open to hearing you, you have to make sure you're open to hearing them. But if you go into the conversation, I'm going to convince you, I'm going to force you, I'm going to overpower you to change your mind. And we tell ourselves because I'm right. Well, you're likely not going to get very far and they'll feel your defensiveness and how closed you are. And likely they'll be more closed too. But if you begin the conversation with, you know, here's what I think, you know, let me give you the reasons why, what do you think? Let's talk about it. You're more likely to one, have a good conversation. And two, again, we want to recognize that our 
goal shouldn't be, I'm going to go in and change your mind. It should be, I want to have a discussion and a conversation with you, which is very different than just changing someone's mind. Um, and so also when you're you know dealing with people who disagree with you, you can make efforts if you'd like to communicate and open that discourse, but recognize that it's not your responsibility to change their mind and that it's very hard to change people's minds when they believe something strongly. So be mindful of that when you enter the conversation as well. So I'll leave that one there. After the break, I'll, I'll share some more of your questions. Uh, let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So on tonight's show, I'm taking your questions from Instagram live uh, and I'll continue. I wrote down many of them. I probably won't get to uh, all of them. That'll be for sure. Even the ones I wrote, uh, many more that were still uh, on my Instagram. Let's see, which one should we do next? How about, uh, is the world fair? What do you think? Uh, good question. Is the world fair? I would say absolutely not. Um, and I think actually one of the, if I would say meanings of life or living a meaningful life for any of us is to try to make the world more fair, to make the world more just. Um, fairness, justice, of course, these can be debated what that means. One way I think we can, for me, determining fair and just is that uh, everyone has their basic needs met from childhood. Um, and even going forward for all of their life, and that we reduce and work to eliminate all unnecessary suffering. By unnecessary suffering, meaning that if people are starving and there's food, that should be, we can eliminate that. If people have certain illnesses and there is the medication, but because of things like money or getting the medication there, that as a world, we should work towards that. So that's what I mean by unnecessary suffering. Even in uh, someone who has all the money in the world, there's some things, some suffering, physical and emotional, you can't stop. Uh, people are researching all sorts of treatments for medical issues. I mean, we just saw it with COVID. The vaccine came out uh, after many people had lost their lives. People continue to lose their lives. Again, much could have been done to, to deal with the virus in different ways. But still, um, for some time, we didn't have anything that we could do to as a vaccine. So what I mean by unnecessary suffering, it means that if we have the means to um, take care of our uh, fellow world citizens, we make sure that we do that. Again, if people uh, don't have water or they don't have sanitation for certain things, we I think as a world community, global community, we should take care of that and make that a priority. I think going back to the previous segment about COVID, I think we saw something, and I mentioned this many times back then too, something I thought was beautiful, there's always some darkness uh, or some light silver lining, was that I think people came together at least to some degree to help one another in the sense that if you look at what was going on, many people stayed home even though they were far less vulnerable to get sick or to get very sick from coronavirus, but they were making sacrifices for other human beings. And I think that's something that should be an accepted part of life, that we make sacrifices for one another in different ways. It doesn't mean we sacrifice everything, but that we consider that, that it's not something that, well, I, it's not hurting me, so I don't care what happens to you. And as we generally see in the book, actually, uh, The Some of Us by, I think it was Heather McGee that I talked about last week, we might think it's affecting others, but 
you know, the, the, the planet and really the whole world, but uh, is like a ecosystem. Things affect one another. If you pollute one area, it's going to come back to you in some way. If you even create hate and violence somewhere, it likely, likely will come back to you in some way. So it does affect you anyway. But nonetheless, I, I would hope that we um, think about how to make the world more fair. And, you know, something I hear sometimes about this when people say uh, they use this phrase, well, life isn't fair as a justification for something. Oh, you know, some kids are uh, experiencing homelessness in a wealthy city like Los Angeles. Well, you know what? Life just isn't fair. And I think that's a very uh, kind of cheap way to get out of really looking at what's going on. Yes, life isn't fair, but we should strive to making it more fair. You know, I'm sure if you told that same person, they said life isn't fair. And he said, oh, give me give me all of your money. OK, life isn't fair. And give me that and give me this. Life isn't fair. They would fight back. They would say this is not OK. They would probably be thinking something like this isn't fair. Um, so to, to say that as a justification for the way the world is, I think, is just an easy way of trying to not look at the actual situation. Yes, there are injustices in the world. Things will always probably be a little bit unfair. Uh, it won't be that it will be perfectly fair, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't strive towards making the world more fair. And to me, that's something that all of us as human beings should be looking at. How can we make the world more fair? Who is suffering unjustly? What are uh, sometimes the invisible victims of things that are going on, sometimes the visible victims of things that are going on? How can we try to promote um, justice in the world. So I don't think that the world is fair, but I do think that we should make, all of us uh, should make that a priority, try to make the world more fair. Uh, let's see, another question was about how to deal with strong-willed toddlers, and they said four to five years old. Toddler sometimes, you know, starts even at two years old. How to deal with strong-willed children toddlers and so parenting as I always mention when I talk about parenting is likely the hardest role any human being can have in their life uh, and the biggest responsibility and that tends to go hand in hand the biggest responsibilities tend to be the most challenging and so being a parent is very difficult and when we talk about a quote-unquote strong-willed child that can be more challenging but what we have to be careful of is what sometimes people think is if you have a strong-willed child, you're supposed to, in essence, break that will to overpower them, to uh, take control of the situation. And so, as I mentioned, being a parent is very difficult because you have your child and you're trying to raise them the best way that you can uh, emotionally, your relationship with them, provide for them, all sorts of things. Make sure they have a balanced life as much as possible. And there's things like time and bringing them somewhere here. We have to do that now. It's time for school. So when a child is quote unquote strong willed, it can make things a little bit more challenging in the sense that getting them to do what you want becomes harder. But that's what you have to be aware of is that a lot of times when we think of a child as easy or challenging, really what we a lot of times mean by easy is they make life easier by always listening to me and doing what I want. Make They don't ever question me if I say something. They do it as soon as I say it. And sometimes we think that's a good thing, but oftentimes that happens out of fear or out of the feeling that I'm not allowed to disappoint you or I'm not allowed to say or do something you don't like. So I sometimes think of when we used to have you know dinner parties, 
before COVID, and sometimes you'd see a child sitting there quietly the whole night. And especially in Persian culture, but maybe all cultures, they'll look at that little boy or girl like, what a good child. This four-year-old didn't move for hours. And it made our night easier as the adults. We consider when we have these dinner parties, although the children are there because we kind of need to have them there, the the grown-ups think this is our party, it's for us, and the kids are just something that can make it more of a nuisance or annoying. So if they sit there and do nothing, what a great kid. Uh, but likely if you have a three or four-year-old that doesn't move all day, that's concerning. Children are supposed to play or supposed to be active or supposed to engage in things, supposed to explore the world. So what we sometimes think of as an easy kid doesn't necessarily mean that's the healthiest thing. What's easiest if they never disagree with you, I get that. And it does make sense. It would be in a sense easier if they never question you. But what you want to be careful is that one, to make sure you make it easy for your child to question you in the sense that they are allowed to disagree or they are allowed to tell you they don't like something that you did. They don't have to always say you were right and you were good and everything you do was perfect. They can let you know, mommy or daddy, I didn't like when you did that or you said that kind of mean or, you know, I thought this was unfair, going back to the question of fairness. And it's not that we're saying you tell them you're you're so right, I'm so wrong, but that you can have a conversation. So, uh, you know, how to deal with a strong-willed toddler, the question was asked. We also want to make sure we build the will of our child no matter what, to think for themselves, to to be able to feel and share those feelings, to share their ideas, to share when they're upset, to not avoid conflict, something that is so common, but especially in, in the Persian culture that I deal with a lot of clients who are Iranian background, avoiding conflict is so prevalent, just such a fear, always avoid it, don't fight. And what usually happens is we don't fight until we blow up. So we don't have healthy arguments and disagreements. We have these ugly fights that end up damaging relationships because we also don't look at conflict as something that can be resolved. Oh, you know, my sister said something 25 years ago and we haven't talked since. I, I see so many stories like that in our families and it's heartbreaking. And so we don't model for our children that conflict is a necessary part of relationships. You can't have healthy and strong and close relationships if you don't have conflict. It's not possible because the assumption is that everyone would agree on everything all the time, which is not realistic. It's not human. It's not something we should expect. So if you have a relationship that has zero conflict, that means one or both people in that relationship are holding things back or you're not very close. So if you've never had a fight with your partner, now when I say fight, I don't mean it has to ever and it should never be disrespectful, aggressive, violent at all. I mean having a disagreement where you share your feelings. But if you've never had an argument or a fight, that means something's really wrong in your relationship and it's not that close and you're not being that open. So we want to make sure we build the will of our children too. Something I've seen so many times as a parent will tell me, you know, I want my, my kid at school to tell their teacher, I don't like what you said, to stand up for themselves. Or if someone bullies them or says something mean, I want them to go tell them, hey, you know, it's not okay to talk to me this way or, or to go get some help in some way. And I always ask the parents, you have to ask yourself, how easy is it for your child to say those things to you, to disagree with you?
Because very often what can happen is a very controlling parent in the home will want to have control, will want to have all the power, but then somehow they want magically for that child to then be in the world and stand up for themselves when in the home with their mother or father who should be the person they can be the most comfortable with, they aren't allowed to do that. So we have to be very careful that some of these assumptions or things that we carry with us, with our children, don't affect the way that we allow them to to express themselves and to be who they want to be. And that I know this question was more looking at how to deal with a strong-willed toddler, but to make sure we build the will in the sense that uh, the self-esteem, that you have a right to disagree, you have a right to share your feelings, you don't have to want what I want, that's okay. We can want different things, we can like different things and still love each other. That's part of actually any two human beings that like each other or love each other. Um, You're allowed to speak your mind. And then dealing with a strong-willed toddler at the same time, I don't want to say it's just so easy and, you know, uh, you should never have a problem with it. It can be challenging. And so you still do need to have boundaries. You still need to have rules and things in the home that make it make sense to give it some structure. And you likely will have to explain it to them if you're saying they are strong-willed. Usually they will challenge you. And so it does make you question yourself, which is not bad. Okay, why is this a rule? Why do I tell my child he or she has to do this or can't do this? They'll probably make you think about it. And that, again, it's easier if they never questioned you and you just said, hey, this is a rule, do this. And they're like, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, and followed you. But a child might think for themselves, say, why Why do we have to do it this way? Or you're saying we have to do it this way, but last week we did it differently. And that could be a little bit frustrating or even annoying for a parent. Like, oh, I just wanted to like, you know, get things done so I can get to this thing or put them to bed because I have to take care of this other thing. I understand there can be stressors and challenges every every day, um, but your child is maybe saying something that makes sense. And I think as a parent, it's important to allow for that to make sure that happens. So you do have to still keep the boundaries with them. Um, You have to make sure that you keep the rules with them. Be consistent. They'll also test your consistency because, again, if you say this is the rule, but last week you did it differently, they're going to use that in in a sense to say, well, this is not necessarily the rule because uh, you did it differently this time than you did before. So having a strong-willed toddler or child can be more challenging in a lot of ways, but your role as a parent, which is always the role of a parent, is to allow them to be who they are and not to break them or change that part of them, um, but to find a way to allow them to be themselves and maintain your relationship while keeping the boundaries. Again, that's why parenting is so hard. Trying to balance all of those things altogether is not easy. All right, so I'm taking your questions. I want to get to a few more, but we're at another commercial break. So after the break, I'll I'll go through a few more of your questions from Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Taking your questions from Instagram for today's show. Um, I wrote down a few more of the many that were submitted. One was... I am scared to be vulnerable and show love for my husband. How can I? And so uh, vulnerability, it's a word we hear a lot um, about the importance of vulnerability. It's good to be vulnerable, but actually being vulnerable is not easy. And it is 
does feel risky. I was talking about something related to this during the break about when you want anything good, you have to be willing to risk a lot of things usually to get it or that you can lose that thing or along the way lose something. But being vulnerable means that we are willing to show, especially in this case, it's talking about a romantic relationship, uh, some of our not so good sides, whether that's when we're feeling bad. So sometimes for, for some people showing that they're sad or mad or hurt, that can feel very vulnerable to uh, show that they are not okay, especially in a society when we are always um, encouraged to say we're okay, that we're feeling fine, especially in the Persian culture, this is true, but even in general, but also there is such a pressure at times to be positive and to be happy all the time. So many people have a hard time to express that they're not feeling okay. Uh, the question said, and to show love for my husband. So uh, I, I think the person is even here on Instagram live, but I won't make it a back and forth, but it's hard to exactly, um, uh, know what she means, but I'll talk about some things related to that. But really, when we're in a romantic relationship, when you commit to someone, we should make it our duty and responsibility to make our partner feel loved. Now, yes, of course, people can have a hard time taking love in. It's complicated. So the other person does play a big part, as you do, in and how you feel loved. But I think it's our responsibility to make our partner feel loved. And if they don't feel loved, rather than get defensive, we should put effort to see what can we do to make them feel loved by us. Um, have conversations, try to understand. There's things like the five love languages. People uh, express love and experience being loved in different ways. Um, there's things that we might not realize we're doing that our partner likes and doesn't like or things that we don't do that our partner wishes we did do. Uh, and so it can be very important to have these types of conversations and to not be offended if our partner says they don't feel loved. So that's one thing I think as the mindset is you should think even, you know, in a way of if you re reflect on your day at nighttime, be like, did I make my husband or wife feel like I love them? Would they know for sure that I love them? I hope I said it, but I hope I also showed it to them. And also, do I know what makes them feel loved? And can I ask them about that? So um, it's very important to make that our mindset. So to this individual, we should you should take that as your responsibility to make sure your husband feels loved. Now, when we look at almost any aspect of a relationship, there are three levels or aspects of ways we can look at it. One is you yourself. So in this case, if we're talking about being vulnerable, showing love, you have to look at yourself personally, your own um, psychology as far as your experiences, your family, self-esteem, your experience with showing love, your experience with all those things. But you yourself, how do you uh, do with this issue? The other layer is your partner. How comfortable do they make you feel in showing love or expressing love or feeling safe to be vulnerable. So when we're talking about vulnerability, of course, we ourselves can have a, a tendency or a comfort level with vulnerability, but also the person we are with can very much affect that. If you open up and they make fun of you, or if you share something and they get mad, or if they're very defensive and reactive, or if they've been aggressive or violent, you are not going to feel 
comfortable, it would make sense to not be vulnerable with that person. So that's another area that even for this person to to ask about is, is it you don't feel comfortable because of you or do you not feel comfortable because of them? And of course, some kind of combination, which is a third area. So there's you, there's them, and there's uh, the relationship between you, both in the sense that how do you match with each other and also what have you created in your relationship? Every relationship creates a culture for your relationship. Are we the kind of couple that talks about things? Um, are we the kind of couple that doesn't talk about things? Are we caring to each other? Do we do each other favors even without asking? Or are we the kind of couple that we yell and scream and curse at each other and say names to each other uh, and, and those kinds of things? So there's so many aspects that get part of the culture of your relationship. And by culture in this sense, I mean what are the things like customs, routines, rituals, things that um, you will, you know, that become part of our day to day life in that sense. So we want to look at that and for the person asking and for any of us looking at our relationship to think of these different layers and aspects of it. For many people, being, feeling or being vulnerable is a very scary um, feeling. Uh, it could feel that we're exposed. You can feel that we can be hurt. And so you look back at your own relationships with your parents and in previous romantic relationships and significant relationships. Um, then you have to see if you were comfortable or how people responded to that. Did you uh, get responded to in a good way? When you cried to your mom or dad, how did they respond? Unfortunately, in many families, they don't respond well. Either they get upset or don't like it or they might overreact. They get so emotionally overwhelmed that you feel like your emotions are a burden to them, or they say things to you later on or during that make you feel bad about it, uh, or about not being perfect or having shortcomings and flaws. How do they respond to those things? So it's very important for you to reflect on your own experience being vulnerable. What messages did you get? Sometimes I tell people in therapy, if you Imagine as a child crying to your mom and then crying to your dad separately. You can do that. What, what do you feel? Or first of all, can you even imagine? Sometimes it's like, I can't even imagine crying to my dad or crying to my mom. It just feels so artificial. And then even we can exp explore why. Well, because I, I didn't even feel comfortable showing any feeling to him or her. Or uh, he would get so mad or she would get so mad or react in this kind of a way. But you can ask yourself, how easy was it for me to show um, that kind of a vulnerability to my parents. Did they make me feel okay? Um, and so the person is is here on, on the Instagram Live saying, we both show love to our children, but not for each other. And, and so when you say it that way, it seems like something obviously is not okay. And, and what you would have to do is look at what has happened between the two of you that's led to this sense the way you even describe it of almost not wanting to show love to each other there seems to be clearly some sense of resentment that has built up meaning some kind of anger or hurt from the past that has not been dealt with that makes you almost not want to show love to each other and i know this is easier said than done but i will say this to you and to anyone listening but to me if you want to be a good parent you also have to be a good husband or wife and work on creating a good marriage. Uh, 
So it's not just a lot of times people say, oh, I'm a great mom because I'm good with the kids. But then I mean, you know, they might not say it that way, but don't treat their dad very well. Or I'm a good um, dad, but, you know, oh, I don't care about their mom, but, oh, I'm so good with the kids. Well, to me, if you are not being kind to the other parent in front of the kids, and if you are not working on creating a loving marriage, there's definitely a big aspect of being a good parent that you are not putting effort into. Again, it's very hard to work on a marriage. It's very hard, especially if it's been many years where things have not been good. But if you tell me I will do anything for my kids, but I don't want to work on my marriage, it doesn't seem to me that you're recognizing what you can possibly do. Because if you actually look at what the children experience, of course, their relationship with each parent in individually is huge. It's very impactful. But the relationship that the husband and the wife or the two parents have in the home creates the environment and the context and the sense of safety that the children will experience. So if there's coldness, that still hurts kids. Because I'll, I'll also hear that from parents to say, well, no, no, our marriage doesn't affect the kids because we don't fight. It's just we kind of don't interact. We sleep in separate rooms, something that I've heard so many times from families that uh, the parents sleep in separate rooms. So, no, we don't fight in front of them. We're just very cold or we just don't interact with each other. And there is hot bad and there's cold bad. Hot bad meaning fighting and yelling and aggression and even violence. Yes, that's horrible, damaging and, and really traumatic. But cold bad also has an impact if there is a lack of love between the husband and wife or the two parents. That also affects the kids negatively. They feel that. You feel coldness. You also feel emotional coldness. And so parents very often say they stay together for the kids. And I don't like that concept of just staying together for the kids, meaning that, well, we'll just keep being married and we won't get divorced for the kids. You need to work together for the kids, meaning let's work on this marriage for the sake of our children, of course, for ourselves as well. But let's work on this marriage rather than let's have an unhappy marriage and force our kids to be victim to that. So if you want to be a good parent, you have to be working on your relationship as well. It's not just about your one-on-one -on -one interaction and relationship with those kids, which is very important. Um, so the person here is also the, who asked the question is saying, uh, that's why I need to get vulnerable and show my real feelings without fear. Um, that without fear part, again, I don't know about your interactions with your husband to know if how he makes you feel and how he will respond. There's no guarantee. So I can tell you, and you know, if I was just feeling in an idealistic way that you can go tomorrow and share with him how you feel and he's going to respond really well to it. I don't know your situation. I don't know um, what he is like and what your relationship is like and what it would take. But I would hope that you can ask him and talk to him about this situation, that we are both not happy it seems from what you're saying. Now, maybe he won't agree. And I would always say open these kinds of uh, conversations, definitely not attacking the other person. So I'm sure you are hurt by him, by the things that he has done or things that have taken place in the relationship that he has done, hasn't done as far as showing you love, ways that he has hurt you, all those types of things. I'm sure they exist. But if we're trying to build a bridge, we first have to connect and we first have to show that that's why we are approaching. If you approach him just because you want to get angry at him, 
that anger is there. But if that seems to be just your only desires to unload that anger on him, you might do that, but you probably won't get very far as far as reconciling and getting closer with him. If, you know, you know your situation better, but if you can open that conversation with him of we're both not happy and even acknowledging what you have done and haven't done as far as making the relationship better, but what you have done to hurt him. I'm sure you've made many mistakes in this marriage too, as any human being does in anything we do, but there's many things that you likely would have done differently, wish you could take back, but you can't. But now we can do with only what we have in front of us. So I I would hope you go to him. And again, I don't know your situation exactly, but if you can try to open a dialogue and a conversation with him, that it seems like you're saying you both show love to the kids, which is wonderful, but that why can't we show love to each other? And that it does seem like we've both hurt one another and I can acknowledge that I've hurt you. And I hope that we can um, work on things for our kids, but also for ourselves, because uh, the kids sometimes can serve as a motivation, because as I said, they're going to be hurting from what is missing in your marriage, but also you and him deserve to feel better too, and to feel that love. Sometimes it can help to remember, why did we marry each other in the first place? Very often in couples therapy, one of the first things or early things you do is you have the couple tell the story, tell their love story of how they met. And of course, in that, it does help the therapist learn a lot about the couple, how they met, the circumstances, get an idea of the history of the relationship. So it it serves that function, which is very important. But a lot of times it can also remind a couple who oftentimes many couples wait to come to therapy when things are not going well at all, but to remember what made them fall in love with this person. Why do they love this person? Why do they want to be with them and and start a life, create a life and create a family together? And that can be very meaningful to remember. There was something that brought us together. Not only that, what can be interesting and when we remember what made us fall in love with someone is that very often the things that we, uh, that helped us or made us fall in love with someone, the flip side of that same characteristic is one of the reasons we are now fighting or one of the things we started to dislike. And learning that and accepting that can be important, accepting our partner for who they actually are, the whole person, rather than just the first part that that attracted us. So for example, you know, you might be drawn to someone, someone who's very rule oriented, everything is planned. They might be drawn to someone who's very spontaneous and free flowing. And at first it's exciting for them to experience something that's in their shadow as far as something they're not expressing, but something that they have a hard time expressing themselves personified in this person and they're drawn to them. But over time of being with that person, being so spontaneous, they sometimes can get Uh, stressed out by the instability, that they change plans, they're not ready on time, they want to make a plan all of a sudden, and the person already has their mindset on what they want to do. And so the individual starts to dislike things that are actually part of the characteristic that actually drew them to that person. So we also start to learn those things. I do have to end the show. And of course, dealing with something like vulnerability and years of a marriage is not something that can be addressed in a few minutes. But I hope you will make that effort I hope your husband will join you and I hope you will approach him in a loving, kind way rather than starting with the anger, start with the love and the kindness and even the acknowledgement for what you have done that has 
negatively impacted the relationship and see if you and him, the same two people, can create a different relationship than you that you had in the last few years. So thank you for your question. And thank you to everyone who shared your questions. Again, I got so many uh, people who submitted questions for this. I'll do this again. I appreciate all of that. Thank you so much. And as always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.